On this episode of Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, we talk with psychotherapist Jody White about the signs, causes, and cycles of love addiction. Welcome to Narcissist Apocalypse Q&A, everyone. I am Brandon Chadwick, and with me today, we have Jody White. How are you? I'm well. How are you, Brandon? I am doing well. And for those that do not know who you are, Jody White, everyone, is a licensed psychotherapist who specializes in love addiction. She uses the Pia Melody model. I know a lot of you out there have Pia Melody's books, and we're going to discuss a lot of that today. And you also have a podcast called Journals of a Love Addict, and it is a very well-reviewed podcast. Everyone should go take a listen to that. You are out of Austin, Texas for in-person therapy within Texas, and you also have groups and courses, and those are worldwide. You can be found at jodywhitelpc.com. Com. So a really big thank you for being with us today. I've been wanting to do an episode on love addiction for a while, and I have a friend of the show who I chit-chat with here and there and from Saskatchewan. Hello to that person in Saskatchewan, and she told me to get you on the show. Oh, how cool. So I, I emailed you. Here we are. Yeah. And, and now we're going to talk about love addiction. So the first thing, let's just start off with what is love addiction? Okay. So I always think I'm going to have a really concise, clear response to this question because I've been working with love addiction for six years. But my my response to what is love addiction is kind of continue. It's a dynamic answer because I'm always learning more and more. Uh, in my own recovery, and then how I apply that to working with clients therapeutically, too. Um, but what I like to do is start out by saying what love addiction is not, because I think there's a lot of uh, misconception, misunderstanding about love addiction, especially right now. I'm so glad people are talking so much about love addiction. If you get on Instagram, Hashtag love addiction, hashtag love addiction awareness, which I started that one, but hashtag love addiction recovery. I mean, it's people are really talking about it, but to really look at, okay, what is it exactly? And so what it's not though, is not an addiction to being in love, not an addiction to a particular person or relationship, which mind you, if you're feeling addicted to a particular person or relationship, I understand that feeling and we'll come back to that. Um, and it's really not an addiction to love, at least not functional adult love, right? Love addiction has, I always say, very little to do with love in reality. And so we can come back to um, any parts of that and probably we'll cover that as we move forward. But as far as what love addiction is, so I am trained in PMLD's model and I use it. Um, pretty much her model for everything. And so according to Pia's model, what love addiction is, is a set of symptoms or characteristics 
that are dysfunctional and lead us to this dysfunctional behavior in relationships, right? So we have dysfunctional relationships. And those three symptoms of love addiction are that we overvalue a person while undervaluing ourselves, right? So another way to say that is we put too much time and attention and focus on another person while neglecting ourselves in a relationship. And we expect unconditional positive regard from another person. And so when I said uh, love addiction has very little to do with love, what, and what I meant was functional adult love, in love addiction, what we're looking for is that unconditional love, that unconditional positive regard that we didn't get in childhood or we didn't get consistently. And unconditional positive regard is um, the thing that tells us we get from our parents, our caregivers, that says you're worthy no matter what. You're valuable. You don't have to do anything to prove that. You know, just for being here, you have value. And unconditional positive regard launches us into the world with the ability to self-esteem. We have, we can esteem from within instead of looking externally for our value, right? So that is really, it's a set of characteristics, a set of symptoms uh, that are um, dysfunctional and lead us to dysfunctional behavior and leading us to dysfunctional relationships. So I have a couple questions. Mm-hmm. You can figure out which way, which order you want to answer them in because uh, the first question would be, what are the symptoms and, sign, symptoms and signs of love addiction? But maybe before we get into that, as we discussed for one second before I flipped this recorder on, was the word in the question I, I sent to you earlier, I used the word disorder and you said, I don't like that word. Uh, well, I said, yeah, I don't use that word. I don't use that word. I apologize. Right? Mm-hmm. I, put words in there. <laughs> I that, don't like it either, but that, I mean, that, I don't that, use it. that you don't use the word disorder. So before we get into the signs and symptoms, let's just focus here on the word disorder and why you don't, why you prefer to not call it that. Yeah. Okay. Let's start by saying I also don't like the term love addiction or love addict or love avoidant, but I use those terms because they worked for me in my recovery. But the more I have learned about it, I mean, they really are labels and those labels can help us in recovery. Don't, did you know what? I don't like the term narcissist, (laughs) but it's the name of my podcast. I know. Well, I have love addict in my podcast. (laughs) We have so much in common, Brandon. And for the exact same reason, for it helps people in their recovery. Right, exactly. So, so you asked me why don't why don't I like the term word disorder? Okay, so when I first started my recovery, I did use the term disorder. I needed to believe that this is a disorder. It helped me to look at this as a disorder, and. So this is where we get into the ethics and the therapeutic part of this is that as a therapist, we are trained, you know, to use certain terms and understand what certain terms mean. And when it comes to disorder, a disorder technically is what something that's outlined in the diagnostic statistical 
manual, which is this huge book that's put together, you know, by psychiatrists who, you know, put decide what the disorders are, you know, and all these codes and come with it and um, all the symptoms and criteria that you must meet, kind of like narcissists, personal, narcissistic personality disorder has all the criteria that you must meet in order to be actually narcissistic, right? So, but that doesn't mean you can't have narcissistic tendencies or narcissistic behavior. Okay, so, but that's why when I say I don't use the term disorder is because technically it is not a disorder, but it is definitely disordered behavior, right? It is disordered behavior in relationships. Um, so that's why I don't, that's why I don't, I try to stay away from using the term disorder because as I'm educating people about love addiction, I want to make sure that they don't go looking for it to be a disorder. And so when it comes to the signs or the symptoms of this toxic, dysfunctional behavior. Yeah. I'm laughing to myself now after saying. <laughs> disordered behavior. This, 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 <laughs> this disordered See? behavior. Yeah. Um, uh, can you give us a, a rundown of these uh, symptoms and signs? The three symptoms slash three characteristics are that we overvalue another person while the second one is we're undervaluing or neglecting ourselves. And then we expect unconditional positive regard. So those are the three symptoms of love addiction according to PML. So... Oh, I have so many questions. I think I should even just stop myself until I ask someone. Uh, I, no one's understanding what I just said because it's all working like a hamster wheel in my head. <laughs> <laughs> it's, I, you're not the first. When I do podcast interviews, they tend to, we, we come out, we start with a structure and they kind of go organically because it's such an, a fascinating topic. It really is. Yeah. Well, my next question was going to, was going to be ahead of myself because other questions should be asked first, but within the context of in an, an abusive relationship, you know, we have a lot of people that might come in being codependent in, in, in the first place. And, uh, the abuser in these situations will create an addiction within the relationship because I see a lot of these relationships as uh, for the most part, uh, an addiction and that you, an addiction is created within it where you're you become addicted to the other person. It's not love. As you, as you say, you might think it's love, but it's a, um, it's an overwhelming sense of love on one side or trust building on the other side or feeling seen or being given the basic thing that you were not given like uh, when you were a child or whatever your basic fear or desire was. And then once that is instilled by the other person, they then have the ability to place it on their side of the wall or the barrier fence. And once they can pull away, you go chasing it. And that's the addiction. Am, am I wrong or? Right. So when love addiction, the way I kind of, this is maybe oversimplifying it, but I, it's the process of trying to get that unconditional positive regard. So it's the process of trying. It's the trying. And it's all the pretzel. We're turning ourselves into a pretzel. We're jumping through hoops. We're, you know, 
because we're it's always a little bit out of our reach there. But we'll get maybe crumbs or hints of it, like a little, but it's never actually the unconditional positive regard because no one can give that to us. That's our parents' job in childhood, right? They have to fill our buckets. So going back to you, it's the parent job, the parent job. So what, what are the causes of love addiction? So, okay, we look at the codependence comes first. And so we also then need to look at, well, what is codependence, right? Because that's also often misunderstood. Yes. Right. Okay. And so if you look at Pia Melody's model of codependence, I mean, it's developmental immaturity due to childhood trauma or childhood wounding. And it's wounding in five areas. So a child has five natural attributes, right? Every child's valuable just for being here. Every child is very vulnerable. Every child is imperfect. They are dependent and they are open and spontaneous. That's those are naturally, that's what a child is, those five things, right? Now, if there's wounding around those five natural attributes, right? Meaning if there's wounding around your value, um, you're either taught that you're less than or that you're better than. That can happen too, right? And if with vulnerability, if there are strict, harsh boundaries, you might be too contained, um, too, you become walled off. Or if the, uh, if there are passive non-existent boundaries, right? You see how that could work. Then you raise up, you erase, you have no boundaries at all. Um, if you're wounded around your imperfect, your imperfection, if you're expected to be perfect, um, then that affects your reality and how you see yourself and dependence. If you're wounded around that, you can be either anti-dependent, like I'm, I don't need any help. Don't worry about me. I can take care of everything. Um, or you're dependent on others to care for you. And then, um, if you're wounded around your spontaneity or your, we call it your containment there too, because then you might actually, um, have issues with moderation, but really moderation is wound through that entire model. That's Pia's model, right? And so, um, all of those end up with extremes. So you see how less than better than walled off to passive, right? Dependent, anti-dependent. And that's how the dysfunction lives. We want to live moderately in the middle, but due to the childhood wounding, we are living in the ex- extremes. And so then if that codependence develops into an addiction, because when the pain of codependence becomes too much, we turn to something to soothe it. Okay, so then when the, so if you look at, there's this, um, in the case of, let's say, childhood emotional neglect, um, you are feeling less than, you're feeling unworthy, um, there's possibly abandonment, rejection, and so you start to do something to um, fantasy is a big part. When there's neglect in childhood, we might turn to fantasy or some, that's a self-soothing. It's not even self-soothing. We're calling it auto-regulating because the research is now showing that children actually aren't able to self-soothe, that it's really, they're auto-regulating their nervous system when they're feeling anxious. And so thumb sucking, um, a blankie, you know, um, chewing on their hair, pulling on their hair, something like that. 
But then as we get a little older, we might turn to fantasy. And fantasy is a big part of love addiction because we start fantasizing about a rescuer or, you know, some life that we live usually with someone else and we feel better about ourselves and that takes away the anxiety. And so then we get into relationships and it's kind of like that develop, we start putting that fantasy on someone else. So that's how that can start turning into. And I look at love addiction as something that I call, I say it ramps up. So, because for me, really in my teens, when I was in relationships, those were more codependent relationships. I just needed the relationship in order to feel okay, which isn't really love addiction. That's more codependence. Like I was dependent on the relationship in order to feel okay about myself. Right. But then in my twenties is when the love addiction really started out and it started out with a narcissist, um, in my early twenties. And so that really triggered a lot of stuff that then set the, the pace for the next 23 years before I got into recovery. So I guess this would be a great time to really go into the emotional cycle of a love addict and then maybe the emotional cycle of a love avoidant. Mm-hmm. Would that be a good yeah. way to segue yeah. into that? Yes. Look at us. <laughs> you mean when we get into the relationship, what the cycle looks like? Uh, yeah. So. Like this, uh, yeah. printout that I have here. Yes. From the book. Yeah. yeah. From his book. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So here's, I, this is such a great outline. And if anyone has facing love addiction, you can find this, uh, the emotional cycle of the love addict and the emotional cycle of the love avoidant. But here's how I will just summarize this based on how it happened for me. <laughs> and so you get into the relationship, right? And you are as a love addict. Actually, I really believe two people come together. You don't know. You don't know if it's love addict, love addict. You're just kind of like, everything's cool at first. So, um, but then what happens is it's like everything's cool. You know, oftentimes the love addict will have already a history of dysfunctional relationships and a history of really painful breakups. And so they, some, they often will go into a relationship very wary. Like, I don't know. I'm going to see. I'm going to wait and see what's going on with it. But still, their idea of waiting and seeing, you know, might be a week. <laughs> and so um, as soon as they, the love addict, decides, I'm going to turn toward this person and be into this and be more available, then the love avoidant will tend to pull away just slightly. I mean, it's such an energy thing, you know? It's not like the love avoidant says, I'm pulling away, but the love addict, because of anxious attachment, um, we feel that energy shift and we, it triggers that, um, anxiety and the love addicted behavior, which is then, okay, I'm going to make up a story about, uh, why he's pulling away. So we kind of go in with this fantasy, um, you know, maybe he's pulling away because I did something. And so if I'm just better, I'm sexier, I do all the right things, then I can get him back where he was a week ago when we first met or two weeks ago or whatever it was, because you had that taste of this person being available. And so then there's a reality that happens. So something, let's just, for an example, the uh, love addict finds out that the love avoidant is um, cheating or texting with other women or something Something that the love addict can't 
ignore. And so it kind of interferes with the fantasy, right? And that can lead us into a lot of pain and obsession and withdrawal, like it's a withdrawal of sorts that's so painful and all wrapped up in there oftentimes is how can I, it's still, how can I get this person back? Because I saw for a brief moment that it was all okay. It was all great. It felt really good. So I knew it can feel good again. That's kind of our belief, right? And so we will go through that and either the love avoidant will um, make it up to us, you know, or say something that feeds the fantasy. And so we go back into fantasy, which the fantasy blocks the reality of the relationship. And so then, or the love addict might say, no, I'm done with this, but then soothe through getting into another relationship. So the cycle just keeps going. And for everyone listening, uh, there's no shame of being a love addict here today. We're just trying to explain to everyone how these cycles work, why, you know, you might be susceptible to being uh, this as well. But there's also people that are the love avoidant people. So can you explain their specific uh, cycle? This, if we're looking at all of this through a lens of childhood trauma, and the trauma is either neglect or enmeshment, this is all, again, we're using Pia Melody's model and her theory. And so with a love avoidant, oftentimes they were the hero of their family. Um, they were put on a pedestal. There was enmeshment there. And I'm just going to use the just a typical hetero model here of um, a male being the love avoidant, right, in adulthood. Um, One example of how this happened is that he experienced enmeshment. Let's say um, dad was not around much or at all, and mom um, emotionally depended on the son, made made him into her best friend or her kind of like a surrogate partner in a way you know, um, leaned on him a lot. And so uh, long story short, what happens is um, he felt a lot of responsibility, that love is responsibility, love is suffocating, even though that doesn't mean he didn't love mom. It just means his brain developed around the idea that love is a lot of pressure. Love is a lot of responsibility. And um, possibly there was, quote unquote, a neediness. I don't like the term needy either because I think we all have needs, but um, to a love avoidant, especially if you're looking at uh, Pia's model, is that the love avoidant feels like the partner is needy. They need too much, so much responsibility, so much pressure. They're trapped, right? Yet, because of this childhood wounding, the avoidant was a child and couldn't say no to mom, didn't have the ability or the understanding of boundaries or even a self-concept, right, to be able to say, hey, mom, this is not my job. You're going to need to find an adult to talk to. <laughs> you know, there wasn't, he didn't have that ability. And so now in adulthood, um, again, using a male as a love avoidant, he is unable to say no to a relationship. So he gets into the relationship because he doesn't really, uh, he also doesn't have a, he, what we call, we call them damaged boundary systems. That's what all this childhood wounding is, we're, Love addict, love avoidant, we've got damaged boundary systems. Um, Also, the love avoidant tends to be very charming um, at first, which, by the way, the love addict can be very charming, too. 
Um, so, but the love avoidant is um, very seductive because they are helpers. In childhood, that enmeshment, they were a helper, right? They were, they were the hero. And so they come across as very charming and very strong sometimes and very um, having their act all together. And to a, someone like a love addict who doesn't always believe that their act is together, they can look at this as it's very seductive, right? And it, even powerful sometimes, especially if the person is actually in a powerful position. Um, then the, the love avoidant will start to feel suffocated and trapped. And they will put up this wall, right? And it can be gradual, just like I said earlier about the energetic shift. There's that wall, and then they start to feel resentful. So again, this all goes back to boundaries because the love, neither one of them is operating with good boundaries or functional boundaries. So instead of communicating the love of what it starts to put this wall up and then becoming resentful about the partner's neediness, right? And, and in this process, the love of what it goes into a one-up position, right? And that feeds the love addiction because the love addict already has, is in the one down position and has the, so we see how that matches up. Um, at this point, then, when they're behind the wall, the love avoidant will seek intensity outside of the relationship. So either through, like, an addiction, uh, another addiction, um, alcohol, drugs of some sort, or cheating, having affairs or carrying on with other people, uh, gambling, something like that. Um, while So the love avoidant seeks the intensity outside of the relationship, while the love addict seeks the intensity inside the relationship. So that's another form of you can kind of draw a picture of it either the, the love avoidant is looking outside of the relationship while the love addict is all of their focus is on the relationship everything else is falling apart They're, everything is focused on the relationship and so um then either the love addict gets tired of it says hey i'm done which will trigger the avoidance anxiety and fear and they will come back a lot of times they'll you see that oftentimes the love addict, wants, especially once they go through their withdrawal and maybe they're even feeling better, the love avoidant comes knocking on the door, literally. <laughs> I've had this happen. And, hi, can we talk? I'm missing you so much, you know? And then the whole cycle can start again. So. And that that's like, that, that's the biggest problem. Because as soon as the other person's going to walk away, the other person comes back and and it just goes back and forth, back and forth. So... I, I guess a thing that I skipped earlier, which maybe I should have mentioned earlier, was I guess what are the biggest signs for a person to recognize that they are acting in a love uh, addiction uh, manner? I, I guess is that the best way to put it? Um, like self-identifying uh, traits that they can pick up on and maybe reel themselves back if they're listening to the show today. And same with the love avoidant. Are there a little like traits that you can help people be like this, this, and this, maybe I should look into it a little bit further. Yes. Okay. So I think that really, because recovery is all about rebuilding or building the relationship with oneself. And that's what I like to tell people <laughs> that, you know, I specialize in love addiction, but I'm really an advocate for the self because recovery work is about getting to know yourself. And so if you look at how, how you feel about yourself in the relationship, so to ask, you know, am I, do I feel good about myself? 
do I feel insecure all the time? Do I feel anxious all the time? Um, or do I neglect myself? Like, look at what's in, what's going on in the rest of your life right now. Are you able to focus on other things? Like, are you able to take care of yourself? Like, are you exercising? Are you eating well? Are you, um, are you able to say no in the relationship? And I don't just mean no when you don't like something. I mean, do you feel comfortable and do you feel safe in this relationship? Um, these are all, and these all go with the five core symptoms of codependence, which we talked about. Um, because that's looking at how is, how's my ability to self-esteem, you know, is it moderate, you know, so I'm not going one down all the time or one up, you know, um, am I able to practice functional boundaries and feel safe doing so? And am I able to take care of myself? Um, not overly focused on this relationship or this person. Um, so I think that those are some, to me, it all starts with boundaries, like to look at, okay. Do I, how are my boundaries? Are they functional? You know, that's because it really, recovery also, when we talk about rebuilding that or building that relationship with oneself, the first step is we got to do boundary work. So how do you illustrate boundaries? Well, here's how I illustrate boundaries. And so the goal is if in a relationship is both partners are operating interdependently. Right. They're not. Explain too- interdependence. Yes. Yeah. So you're not overly dependent on each other, but you're also not anti-dependent as in not asking for any help. So interdependence is I know when to ask for help. I also know when to take care of something myself. I also know not to jump in and help unless I have been asked. So meaning that's where the codependence piece is, right? Like I don't. And so. The way, and this helps also with the definition of interdependence, is I look at it as, I call it the hula hoop concept, which is that we're all in a hula hoop. Envision a hula hoop. And so everything inside my hula hoop, including here, me physically, that's all all my stuff. This is my stuff. So my values, my opinions, my beliefs, my motives, um, what I like and don't like, all that stuff is mine. And same with a partner or a friend, because love addiction doesn't just apply to romantic relationships. This stuff can show up in platonic relationships and professional relationships, too. So what's in someone else's hula hoop, let's use a partner, that's theirs. And I do not get to get into their hula hoop and start reworking stuff. Just like if they're in my hula hoop, that's a boundary crossing. And you're probably going to feel it. And so to be able to communicate, hey, you know, let's, let's talk about boundaries. Do, and the most important thing is, do I feel safe in this relationship? You know, and um, meaning, and can I be myself? Can I be my authentic self? Am I making myself small to fit into this and in hopes of getting my needs met? You know, and we're also really important, and I don't even think we talked about this yet. We're talking about attachment. I mean, all of this, you know, so it's the love addiction, then, but the codependence comes first. Codependence is the developmental immaturity due to childhood trauma. And that trauma is really relational trauma, which is attachment trauma, right? So we get into relationships and I just say, we're continually trying to work out our shit that we need to work out, you know, from childhood. And that's what both partners are typically trying to do. (laughs) And so, um, but if you look at, okay, so how do I feel about myself and um, how am I operating? Do, do I like myself in this relationship? 
that's also a really important question. And so a lot of what brings someone to um, therapy when they're, they're in a love addict or a co-addicted relationship is I don't even like myself. And also the dysfunction in the relationship is, is killing me. Like I'm falling apart. I'm not able to self-care. So that's another sign. How's my self-care? I'm not able to focus on anything else. I feel like I'm going crazy. I, I'm, I said that for years and I hear that from clients. I feel like I'm losing my mind in this relationship. I can't focus on anything else. Um, yeah, we break up, we get back together. That's another thing. Um, the back and forth, the back and forth, which is just exhausting. So yeah, I really, if someone is questioning the relationship, it, I would really start with how do you feel about yourself in the relationship? Yeah, and that's where I was going to go uh, next as far as recovery goes. As far as how you help people in recovery, uh, where do you begin? And a question I like to ask all therapists is what is doing the work to you? Yeah, so in my personal life, what my work sure. looks like? Yeah. Yeah. All right, well, I can talk about how I got into recovery, which I think then leads into how I work with clients too. Um, so I was 46 years old. I'm almost, I'm 40, I'm 52. So when I was 46, I had gone through another breakup and which was similar to the one right before it, which was similar to the one right before it. And there were three breakups within a 12 month period. And this was after three years of not dating at all, no sex, no intimacy. And during that three years, um, I thought I was healing. I thought I was doing work on myself when really I was just avoiding being close because I didn't want to go through another terrible breakup. So as soon as I started dating again and I started dating someone who I, you know, you, you look at someone and you look at literally this person had credentials and worked in the mental health field. And so I of course put him on a pedestal and thought he probably had his act together and we get into a relationship and things fell apart very quickly um, because he had his own childhood wounding um, needed addressing. But, um, so after this third breakup in a year, uh, a therapist friend of mine here in Austin's, um, said she, she referred me to another therapist and I did not know anything about love addiction. I'd heard about it briefly a few years before, but really ignored it. So I thought it sounded terrible. And, um, I go in to meet with this therapist who just happened to be trained by PM Melody. Did not know this when I made the appointment. And I get in there, I tell her what's going on. And it was within 20 minutes, she looked at me and she just said, yeah, so you're a love addict and you're attracted to love avoidance. And I bet this is what happens. And she basically broke down the cycle for me, which that cycle is every single one of my relationships, right? And so it just felt so important and powerful also heavy, but I was so relieved to have a reason because for so long I thought it was just me. I thought I was just messed up. I thought this is just how it is. It was my normal, you know, because that's what happens is you be, you, it, when you don't know anything different, it is your normal, right? And so she gave me a copy of Facing Love Addiction. I probably read it cover to cover in less than 48 hours. And I got into an intensive with her, this particular therapist here in Austin, which is a 
meadows based in PMLD based intensive, um, where we dig in to the childhood wounding and we look at how it affects us in adulthood. And so that just really kicked off my recovery. Um, I also had to do 90 days, no contact with my most recent breakup partner, <laughs> uh, which was very, very hard. Um, because typically when I love addict and a love avoidant breakup, there's a whole dance that goes on. It's not a, often not a clean breakup, right? And so that is what I work with, with clients too. I talk about, it's facing love addiction. It's PMLD's model. It's looking at the codependence and really understanding what codependence is, which is another term I don't like because it also does not, it doesn't describe what we're dealing with. We're talking about childhood relational trauma and, um, the way I'm looking at it now is we've all experienced some sort of trauma in childhood, right? Because what Pia says is anything that's not nurturing to a child is traumatic to a child. So we've all experienced that. We're all walking around with our wounding. So it's not about your family was terrible. Uh, we're going to shame your parents. It's not like that. It's because they have their own stuff too, right? And so it's really just owning your story um, and getting clear on your experience and validating that experience. Um, but, but really getting in touch with rebuilding your idea of who you are. That's a huge part of it. And being honest about that. And being honest about that. Yeah. yeah. So, uh, I, I, one more thing before we leave, just a question, a curiosity. How do you feel about romantic comedies? The game of it, you know, the concept of what you see in, in movies would be for the most part, and I'm going to use the old, you know, regular boy meets girl, boy loses girl, um, you know, boy tries to get girl back. She does whatever boy screws up, you know, and then the, the reconciliation and the influence that has as far as unhealthy behaviors Mm -hmm. on all sides uh, when it comes to love, what love is, uh, behaviors someone does that are considered to be acceptable, and the influence that has on a younger mind growing up. So, well, I believe... Romantic comedies, Hollywood in general, uh, you know, there's this Hollywood idea of love and also a Hollywood idea of sex too. I mean, it's all passionate and, you know, you look great and all this stuff. And it, it's just, there's a lot of stuff wrapped up in what we learn through movies um, that is just inaccurate. Uh, but also books, there's, and fairy tales, you know, because I grew up as a kid with fairy tale Cinderella, um, Snow White, my nieces are 10 and under, they're still looking at fairy tales. And so even though I think on the surface that can look so harmless, but it's what is, what is that telling uh, a child's brain? You know, the idea of relationships and love and value too, especially let's just speak from, I'm going to speak as a female our value is in this prince, this person loves me enough to come back with my shoe <laughs> or, you know, to come find me or to kiss me and I wake up and then we're together. It's just, there's, yeah. So yeah, not, 
if now that we're talking about romantic comedies, not not a fan because I think about Kate Hudson and um, uh, Matthew McConaughey. Thank you. Those I yes, those do not do not like those. But see, I can, can I tell you something? Uh-huh. Of all of the movies that I like, that is the first one that pops into my head as being the most unhealthy one in in my lifetime that I can think of that really just sticks out. Yeah, I I agree. And they couldn't stop. They just kept making them. I don't know. I guess apparently <laughs> they had a contract of some sort. They just kept going. But see, having said that, I love When Harry Met Sally. I think it's different. I don't think it's geared toward young people. Well, but yes, when you said that, my first thought was uh, Kate Hudson and Matthew McConaughey. But yeah. So not not a fan, and you're right. I do I believe that those fall into um, feeding the fantasy, just like fairy tales do. Yeah. So, Jody White, I want to thank you for being a guest on our show today. Well, thank you. This has been fun. This has been fun. And I learned a lot while talking to you. Everyone else today is going to learn a lot from uh, listening to everything you had to say. And uh, tell everyone uh, what you've been doing or what you have kind of going on in the future and where everyone can find you once again. Yeah. So my website is Jody White LPC, and that's Jody with an I. Uh, you can also jo- jodywhitelpc.com and you can also find me at journalsofaloveaddict.com and on Instagram at jodywhite underscore at the end. I like to think of it as my little film blank, but <laughs> uh, or at journals of a love addict on Instagram as well. And right now I am in the process of running an online mother hunger group. Uh, I'll be running another one of those, um, probably a couple more this year. Mother hunger is Kelly McDaniel's. Uh, work. She wrote the book, Mother Hunger. She also wrote Ready to Heal. So, so, so what any, is that about, Mother Hunger? Yeah, so Ready to Heal, really, if you're if you're struggling with love addiction, you think you might be struggling with love addiction, I recommend Facing Love Addiction by Pia Melody and also Ready to Heal by Kelly McDaniel. And in her, Ready to Heal was her first, Kelly's first book, and she introduced the concept of Mother Hunger. And so the way Mother Hunger fits with Pia's work is that here we are talking about that search for the unconditional positive regard that we did not get in childhood. And so now what Kelly McDaniel has done is taken that and broken it down more specifically to if we did not get the unconditional positive regard, the nurturing, the protection, the guidance from our mothers, then that will leave us with a hunger for our mother's love. And then we will look for it in our adult relationships. So, and that is her book, Mother Hunger, which just came out last year and it's excellent. Well, thank you once again, Jody White, for being here with us today. And for those of you who want to be a guest on our Survivor Story podcast, please do go to our website at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And at the top of the page, there's a button there that says Guest Form. When you click on that button, it takes you to a page where there's our instructions read all our instructions and fill in our guest form and press submit or send us an email at NarcissistApocalypse at gmail.com. 
And if you want some support, please do go to our website again, NarcissistApocalypse.com. Top of the page, there's a button that says Support Group. When you click on that button, it takes you to our very own safe social network. And in there, we have forum boards for you to post on, for people to talk with you and help you work through things. We have our very own support group meetings on Zoom every Wednesday night and Saturday night and every other Thursday afternoon. We have episodes that never made it to air. We have ad-free episodes as well. And if you just want to support our show, because we always need support, please do join our support group. And you can do that at NarcissistApocalypse.com. And if you need even more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. So if you are needing help finding a shelter, you can do that at DomesticShelters.org. If you are looking for articles and resources to help you figure out what's going on uh, in your relationship, uh, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. It's a wonderful organization. So if you need more support, please do go to DomesticShelters.org. And now that is it for today. That's our episode with Jody White. And from myself and Jody White, we hope you have a good night.